Please turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, for the choir director, a psalm of David. O Lord, thou hast searched me, and thou hast known. Thou dost know my sitting and my rising, and thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down, and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all together. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from thy spirit or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, Thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to thee and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. For thou hast formed my inward parts. Thou didst weave me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in thy book, they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God! How vast the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awake, I am still with thee. Oh, that thou wouldest slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not loathe those who loathe thee? Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any way of pain in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's usually at this point that I say, let's pray, but I'm pretty sure we just did. One of the things that I think sets the Psalms apart that draws people to them, the most read book by far over the millennia is how they are deeply and 
obviously personal. Not just David, but never more so than with David. You get a large swath of narrative about his life. You see the ups and downs, some of them self-inflicted, and you just it runs the gamut so that when you hear that particular psalmist write, speak, it seems like you can feel it. I mean, the most iconic one of all. The Lord is a shepherd. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still water. 16 or 17 first person pronouns in six verses. Anytime a fifth grader would try and recite that to me and talk about the Lord as a shepherd or he is with me. No, no, no. I don't grade strictly, but we start over with that one. I ain't talking to you about God. This is not a theological discourse, though the theology is probably the depths of you couldn't plummet. That's not what this is. It starts with O, kind of a proclamation. That's like a hearken. Oh, Lord. So, you know, if I fill the pulpit somewhere else and they ask for a title, I'll give them one. I don't really like to. The title of this is Psalm 139. I'd have to be a narcissistic cult leader to sit here and try and think that I could pick a part of this rich passage and try to guess which part of it's God's going to apply to you or you or you to conform you or you or you more to the image of his son. I have no idea what God has in store for you with this psalm. I only know what he's had in store for me all these years. So, in the interest of time, and it's probably not wise to try and take a whole psalm like this and put it in one evening, but I only have one evening. So, you may notice that Lord is capitalized. I think most of the Bibles we use around here capitalize it so that you know He's not saying master. He's saying the name Jehovah or Yahweh. Since it was Jehovah when I was growing up and I don't like change, I'm going to stick with that. But it's God's name. It's I am who I am. It's his covenant name. It's personal. So what about that? I think if you were to read in Exodus chapter 3, this will be a review for some of you, probably the most famous Moses story and one of the most famous stories in the Bible, when Moses was kicking into high gear, finding excuses not to do this thing he had just been recruited by God to do, he said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the God of your fathers, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He ends that section by saying this. 
Each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. Thus you shall plunder the Egyptians. But you're not pirates. They're going to actually pay you to leave without you lifting a finger. It's my contention that when he reveals his name there to Moses... When he says, I am who I am, I don't think he's through introducing himself. I think the rest of that section is a proper introduction. And indeed, since Pharaoh said those faithful words, who is I am? I don't know I am, and I'm not letting the people go. And then over and over and over again, while Pharaoh probably feels like a speed bag, that you may know. I am, I am who I am. The whole thing was an introduction, not just of God to his people, but really the grandest stage in the world at that point. He could have said anything in the world, but he said, I am who I am. And then I think he revealed two different sides of himself. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thus I shall be remembered forever. You know, when I was in uh, Southern cramming four years into five and a half and getting my degree in psychology, um, I don't remember much on purpose, but I remember these generalized differences between men and women. Women tend to define themselves in terms of their relationships. And you can understand this better if you're an eight-year-old without a driver's license because you've spent a large part of your life listening to your mother talk to somebody else's mother. And while you were ready to go, the conversation went on at length like this. I'm so-and-so. My kids play ball with your kids. I think we know a lot of the same people. And then the next 20 minutes involved going down the list of the same people that they know. Now, why is that? Because... Not stereotyping, not saying it's every woman, but as a group, I am who I love and who loves me. How does your dad introduce himself? I'm Bob, I'm a doctor, I like to hunt and fish and play a little golf. You see how it goes right to how men define themselves by what they do? Thus you shall plunder the Egyptians. That sounds like every day. You ever want to see the dad come out and anybody abuse their kids in front of them for 400 years? He told them flat out, let my firstborn go or I'll kill yours. That sounds like every dad I've ever met. The love of a mother for a newborn, which God does not shy away from, the relentless protective love of a father, which he also does not shy away from. That's the God who our psalmist is calling to. And then it gets, you know, real personal. You have searched me and you have known. Now, if you have a literal translation, it says you have known me, but maybe you'll notice if you have this kind of Bible, you have known me, the me is in italics. Do you see that? You may not have that kind of Bible. 
That means the me is implied. It's not actually there. Which I think means it's implied, but not restricted to just me and my person. Because of what David says next. My sitting, my rising, my thinking. Even when you're over there and I'm over here. My path, my lying down when I'm not even in control of my thoughts. Intimately acquainted with all my ways. And then he said, you have enclosed me behind and before. I don't think that simply means in terms of space. He's in front of me blocking and he's watching my backside. Think about that in terms of time. Think about this future that could overwhelm you. That's hurtling your way like a freight train. And God sees it coming. Think about that past that's set in stone. That could rear its head at any moment and embarrass you. Dallas enclosed me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain to it. God doesn't just know you. He knows all things pertaining to you. He knows why you're striking out in love right now or failing at this test or succeeding or whatever it is, whatever, you know, whichever way it's ebbing and flowing for you at the moment. God knows why there's a reason. There's also someone else out there that's probably moving your way. You don't know them and they don't know you. But God's hand is not limited to just you as a person. David's describing the entire life process. You may notice in the middle, he goes right back to the womb. He doesn't even start at the cradle. You find something about your life that God isn't God over. I think... We just assume that we were brought up to know that God was omniscient. But try and hear that for the first time. What's it truly like to have a God with whom there are no secrets? Think about your life. I'm not talking about the one you live in front of everyone else. The one you just as soon edit out. You Photoshop that entire three years right out of your life. That one. He sees it like it's right now. But he didn't run away screaming with his hair on fire, did he? Most people would. Even your family might. God? I mean, I don't know when, where he was in life when he wrote this. I don't know if he had more shepherding years than kinging years or where this falls pre or post Bathsheba. God knows. And so, thou hast known. If you want to see a great example of God knowing, 
Look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3. When you get the seven letters to the seven churches after the vision in chapter 1, where John described him as white hair. The number one thing that stuck out for me was eyes of fire. And for the ancients, fire wasn't just heat, it was light. Eyes of fire. When the vision closes, the Lord, with eyes of fire, has seven stars in his hand. And he's walking among seven golden lampstands. And right before the visions continue, you kind of get the rules of how this book is to be read. Literal truths will be committed, communicated in symbolic pictures. The seven stars you saw in my right hand are the seven angels, probably ministers, to the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay. So chew on that. God has eyes of fire. He holds the minister and ministries in his hand as he walks amongst his churches. Not that this is necessary, but God tries to communicate things to us in ways that we understand. When you see something on the ground that appeals to you, maybe has value to you, you reach down and you pick it up. Why? Just want a closer look. Want to be closer to it. Want to see all that it is. I don't think it's a coincidence that every one of those letters, I think without fail, I know the overwhelming majority of them, right near the beginning of the letter, have the words, I know. I know you have tested apostles and found them to be false. I know you have withstood the persecution of, I know, I know, I know. And sometimes the things were good and sometimes they were bad, but I know. Why? Well, you knew that from chapter one. God could walk anywhere in the world. Where is he walking? Amongst his churches. And why does he know? Not just because he's omniscient and knows everything. He chooses to look. His eyes on more than the sparrow. And he wants you to feel that gaze, I believe. Otherwise, why describe it like that? And why put it in such detail in that book? And why continue to repeat, I know, I know, I know. You could be the most invisible person on earth at school, this church. God knows inside and out all things past, all things coming. I don't think you can really go any further in this psalm until that sinks in. Until that sinks in, I'm not sure it would really change the choices that you make. For instance... Verses 9 and 10. If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. I mean, when you start in verse 7, he says, where can I go from thy spirit or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn 
This is one of those things you're going to need a commentary for. But the great linguistic commentator, Joseph Alexander, took that phrase, wings of the dawn, and it's not the typical word for morning. It seems to imply daybreak, like that one moment that gets experienced probably more fully in the Middle East where you don't live in the pine belt and the horizon is wide open and you know it's dark outside and then it's dark blue and then it's gray and then there's the sun. Just that moment, that fast from however many, is it 93 million miles or whatever away? Bang. If I could move with the speed of light to the remotest part of the sea. Even there thy hand will lead me. Thy right hand will take hold of me. Did Jonah believe that? I mean, he came along well after the psalm. We know he was acquainted with him because his praise in chapter 2 of his book is clear, clearly a reference to some of the psalms. But you know, there's knowing in them and then there's knowing them. The kind of knowing we're talking about in this psalm is not rote. I'm talking about the way Hebrews knew. Intimate experience with. I believe and I am the God of the heavens and the seas. That's what he told them when they asked him. Well, if you believe that, where did you think you were going when you got invested in your sin to leave? I mean, if you really believe that, I have no doubt he believed it afterwards, but he knew it ahead of time. I wonder how many things I know just like those songs you've been singing since the 1980s. Never notice all those lyrics until you were in front of your kids. But, you know, there it is. It's just coming out of your mouth 30 years. Never heard it. You knew it front to back. But knowing it can't outrun God at the speed of light. Not only can you not run, but here's the next part. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to thee and the night is as bright as the day. Notice darkness, not just dark. We're in this period in history almost never in pitch dark. There's flights from a 24-hour Walmart and gas stations and your alarm clock. You're almost never in pitch black darkness. And there's two things about darkness here. There's the literal and there's the metaphorical. The literal, the essence of dark. You know the way God told Moses to describe it to Pharaoh. Darkness to be felt. What's that mean? Total sensory deprivation. I think one of the reasons I retired from chaperoning youth trips is I was traumatized doing that at a pretty early age, man. We went to this 
This was one of those suck it up, have faith, trust thy brother kind of trips that I'm not really into. It was a lot of rappelling and zip lining and rock climbing. And part of it was spelunking. Do you know what that means? Because I didn't know what it meant. I know what it means now. It means caving. Caving. People who don't have to choose to go into holes in the ground for hours. And so I was in the second group to go. The first group that went, they got lost. I mean, we're sitting there back in the swimming pool waiting on them for hours. And when they got back, I don't know, they seemed pretty rattled. I mean, girls were, you know, crying and glad to be alive. And I thought, I don't feel good. Well, I think we could skip out tomorrow. And so fortunately we had Sergeant Iverson with us. He worked at the youth challenge program and he came with us and um, we're on the way to the van to go there. And our driver starts saying things like, dude, it's going to be so radical. And he just kept saying that. And I said, Fred, how old are you? 19. I thought, this is it. We may never be sane again. So we get in there and Sergeant Iverson breaks out the chem lights, you know, like the little things that glow in the dark that you get waving them around. And Fred tried to tell us that that wasn't part of the experience to which we explained to Fred real quick. It's going to be part of this experience. We ain't getting lost. Man, we got out in there and we were supposed to go. I'm calling it a crack. They called it a hole. It's the kind of thing you normally just caulk up and we were supposed to get through that. And even the girthier members of the trip managed. We know we got Pooh Bear through there. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, well, that's all right. And then we get to something called the sand crawl. It's mud crawl. And you get down, it's like sheer rock. And it's only about this high. And you're supposed to go under it. And it's like a hundred yards with the rock face right there. I'm the guy that says Romans eight when I'm in an MRI machine. Okay. I can't stand. So we start moving. And I mean, I hear a high school girl down there, even right there by her boyfriend. <laughs> I heard what I'm pretty sure were guys. I'm, like just couldn't take it. And I'm thinking, Wiggins, you got to keep it together. Cause you know, you the chaperone here. If they hear you losing, that's it. There's a picture of us somewhere when we, you should have seen me crawling past teenagers to find when we got to the, to the exit and the light, man. There's a picture. I got mud from head to toe. Like, eyes are glowing. Never again. Darkness to be felt. This wasn't the kind of dark, you know, when you turn out the lights and the street lights making its way around your curtains. This is a different kind of darkness. Daddy, why do the slaves have light and we don't? I thought we were better than them. Can't Pharaoh make our God come back? I don't know, son. I don't think I know anything anymore. That's more than just not being able to see, isn't it? That's when you feel. You know, 
worldview just shifted. And then there's the metaphorical darkness, wickedness, evil, sin, and not just everybody else's. This is a personal psalm. He's going to have some strong words for enemies, but not after he expresses his own heart and mind. Where can I go from thy spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? Well, why would you want to? Well, I don't know. A God that knows me inside and out, front and back, I'd run from about anybody that had a chance of knowing that. But where can he go? Not to the utmost reaches of the sea. Not to the darkest place on earth. Not heaven. Not the grave where you won't find his hand leading you in his right hand laying hold of you. And that didn't start when you became aware of God. God's been aware of you a lot longer than you've been aware of him. Inward parts. Unformed substance. Weaving, skillfully wrought in the depths, in the secret place, the womb. God knows you right down to your cell structure. He knows why you are the way that you are when no one else can seem to diagnose you. God's seen you coming. This latest failure, whatever this hiccup is in life, it didn't surprise God. He didn't have a plan B for your life. And when you hear David, now I, I think this is important, especially if you're part of a younger generation. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, wonderful of thy works, and my soul knows it very well. That would be very easy to confuse with mirror, mirror on the wall. That is not what he is saying. Don't be a Bible verser. Don't just take one out of there. Listen to the whole thing. Here's where he goes next immediately. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. What does that mean? I think David beautifully describes himself as fearfully and wonderfully made and intricately woven. But notice he connects that to his God-given purpose that was ready and waiting on him before he was born. He connects his design to his purpose. He was fearfully made wonderfully made to be a giant killer, a psalmist, but not an architect. That was for his son, Solomon. And God told him, I think it was quite a disappointment to him. That's not going to be what you do. But these other things, you're going to do really well. Let that sink in. The next time you look in the mirror and see those 20 things that you would change about yourself, stop and ask, what was I made for? 
You know, Clint Eastwood said a man's got to know his limitations. Those limitations are telling you a lot about yourself, and it doesn't mean God's locked into those limitations, but it does mean that he's paying you the favor of clarity. He's removing a lot of things off the board that you would go after and spend a lifetime chasing were you suited for that. Failure is not always unacceptable. A kid can't always have straight A's because you haven't given that kid any directions in life, have you? Rather than expecting grades and ACT scores, how about sitting someone down as a counselor, a parent, youth minister, teacher, and say, why do you think you're like this? I know Esther was born beautiful. She was born beautiful in a very specific way where she could pass for Persian for a very specific reason. Moses was called a beautiful baby because Pharaoh's daughter just had to have him for a specific reason, a reason most of us wouldn't be up to facing. Why are you the way that you are? And I can tell you in my life, when I look in the mirror, I still frequently do not like what I see, but I understand it better. I understand why I am what I am and why I'm not everything else. And there is a lot of liberation in that. You can't live life wondering what might have been had you chosen door number two. God has enclosed you behind and before. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So then he moves to the thoughts of God and how vast they are and how it would be futile to count them. And then he says, when I'm awake, implying that God is still closely scrutinizing, and even when he's asleep, I don't know if you've noticed this about scripture, but I would highly encourage you to, to memorize scripture and, and to read it in large chunks. One of the problems, I don't say it's a problem, but one of the, I think, eye-openers is whenever you select something to know better, intimately kind of make it part of you, it seems like there's always this one part in it that you wouldn't have put there. I mean, this was a scripture that my wife had a professional artist draw on our daughter's wall when we moved into the house we're in now. She was little about being fearfully and wonderfully made. There was dragonflies and beautiful script and all this on the wall. Oh, that thou wouldest slay the wicked. Oh, God, depart from me, men of bloodshed. Do I not hate those who hate thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. That kind of ruins the Hallmark card, doesn't it? Would you have put that there? Well, I think those are the eye-opener ones for me. Why is that there? Well, we're talking about enemies. Who do you think David came to discover is his greatest enemy? I mean, this is a deeply personal inquest. This is you standing there with the bright light on you, tied to the chair. You're kind of like Job in the last few chapters of his book. Who do you think David discovered to be his worst enemy? He dropped Goliath like that as a teenager. 
but he plunged the kingdom into civil war as an experienced believer over one woman. The whole kingdom rocked. How do you get over that one? And then he proceeded with the census when even Joab, no spiritual giant, that guy, says, I don't think this is a good idea. Nevertheless, we're doing this. Man, as soon as it was done, it said his heart pricked him. Read how many people died in God's chastisement for that one. How do you, how do you get out of bed after that? Before you think, I think there's two things to this, this enemy thing. Number one, it's David's pledge of allegiance. Once he's experienced a God who has seen him inside and out and is still with him, what would provoke more loyalty to than that? I'm with you. Don't care if the whole world's against you. As the hymn says, though none will go, I still will follow. What does it take to God, for God to provoke that kind of loyalty? In a society that's becoming increasingly by the men hostile to Christianity, what does it take for you to exhibit, to cling to God like that? God's enemies, my enemies. And sometimes that's me. I think that's why he went immediately to what he closed with, which was really what he began with. You want to see one come full circle? This is it. It started with God searching him, and it ended with him wanting God to search him. If you survive that kind of inquisition almost, who would sign up for that again? It's like signing up for a root canal again, but it's not. Once someone has seen you for whom you really are, didn't blink and has that kind of loyalty to you deserves nothing less than that kind of loyalty from us David does not want to be his own worst enemy search me see if there be any hurtful way and lead me away from it lead me in the way everlasting Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would welcome you in. Close. That we would have the courage to see ourselves as we really are. So that we may understand that our only hope is your blood. And the promise you sealed by it. Lord, work within us a loyalty to you that is unquestioned, that is unrivaled. Lord, may we pledge our allegiance to you in this room this night. And Lord, demonstrate for us in a saving way your loyalty to us, your children, whom you choose to walk amongst and to see. In Christ's name, amen.